Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Mark. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Um, so again, just for maybe for those of you who are jumping in with us, um, and for those of you who have been here for a little while, we're going through a series right now uh, kind of called Tough Stuff. And, and what we want to do is spend the next few weeks, we're, we're only about three weeks left, we're kind of, this is kind of our halfway point. Um, and so we're talking through um, different issues that maybe you guys are facing in life, or maybe questions that you have in your own heart about Christianity and what the Bible teaches when it comes to difficult situations. We, we talked two weeks ago, we talked about uh, abortion, and then last week we talked about same-sex marriage, uh, and then this week we are talking about um, politics tonight. So, and, and again, one of the reasons I want to why are we talking about this? Like, why, is it because I want to make it weird for everybody? Is it because, maybe a little, is it because I want to, is it because I'm, like, we, we have some sort of axe that we want to grind up here? No, not at all. Um, I think this is one of the main things that the church is for. And specifically, I think this is, like, talking about difficult things. And I think this is one of the main things that the Bible is for. So, so just a quick points here. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but you may know that it, a lot of times pastors will preach from these, these things called pulpits. That's kind of the word for it. And that's kind of a funny word. Why is it called a pulpit? Well, it's a nautical term. The pulpit is, and you can look this up, it is the front tip of the boat. It is, in fact, the part of the ship that hits the waves first. And I think that's extremely symbolic as to the preacher's job, the pastor's job. Too long the church has been on the back end when it comes to, or playing catch up when it comes to marriage, when it comes to race, when it comes to slavery, when it comes to segregation. And we should have been, if we had been first out of the gate, like we should have been, maybe things would be different. Um, one slogan is, as the church goes, so goes the nation. And so if, since the church is last on all of these things, since the church is reactionary on so many of these things, unfortunately, it hasn't gone the way we would hope. Um, the fact that a pastor preaches from a pulpit is the way of saying we are supposed to talk about the issues before anyone else does. And so that's one of the reasons I want to do this. Um, and, and politics in particular is a deeply complex issue, and we're not going to be able to address it all here, but in terms of dealing with an issue that is so complex, you may just want to write this down, but this is what, and you've heard it before, this is what Hebrews 4.12 says the word, now think about dealing with difficult issues. Hebrews 4:12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the interactions of the heart. Politics is a tricky subject, but God's word is capable of threading the needle between soul and spirit. So I don't think we should be intimidated. I don't think we as a church should let tricky situations push us away from God's word. No subject is trickier than the division between soul and spirit. And there's not a division between the soul and spirit, but it's, it's, it's the Bible's way of saying it can handle the dicey situations. Does that make sense? able to split joint and bone, which we'll talk a little bit about next week because think about it, when it comes to the issue of transgenderism, this is a soul and a body at issue. Well, what, what do we do about that? Well, the Word of God is able to split soul and spirit, so it can apply to that situation too, and it can certainly apply to politics. So what does God's Word say about politics? Let's talk 
to Jesus. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And this is a story that you probably know. Um, it's one of my favorite ones to teach through because it's just, it just is so incredible at taking the Bible and just plugging it straight into the crazy situations in our day. And it shows you that the Bible really does impact. So Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse 13. Mark 12, 13. Jesus answers the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. So here we go. Mark 12, we're going to go 13 through 15. We'll read a little and talk a little, just like the good old days, right? Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him, in or, to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. We have so many things jammed into just these few verses. First of all, the two groups are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Okay, The Herodians are this group of people that are good with Herod. Herod is good with Rome. Okay, that's the Herodians. They're good with Herod. Herod is good with Rome that's ruling over Israel. The Pharisees hate Rome. They want nothing to do with Roman rule. So already you have these two completely diametrically opposed political parties, and both of them have issue with Jesus. Are you having trouble plugging this in to 2022, guys? One verse, and we've already seen one verse, and we've already seen, there is no hole for Jesus to fit in. But let's get into it. They want to test him. So they're not genuinely, oh, gee, golly, Jesus, please, please share with me your wisdom. They want to trap him. They want to trick him. And so they get into it here, and they ask him, should we pay taxes of 14? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Some of your versions may say taxes. Some of your versions may say tribute. Uh, or the poll tax. And this is why this is important. Um, I think all taxes can be applied in this verse, but, but the Pharisees and the Herodians are not talking about taxes in general here. This is a specific tax. The poll tax, or the head tax, costs one denarius, which is why Jesus asked for it. It's about a day's wage. And it was a tax you had to pay for your life. It was a tax you paid for being a Roman citizen. Okay? That's the head tax, your body, your life, your citizenship. The poll tax. In the Greek, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, in the Greek the word here is kensos, K-E-N-S-O-S. It's where we get the word census from. And in a census, you're tracking your citizens. This is the citizen's tax. Does that make sense? You pay it for being a Roman citizen, which the Jews don't like because nobody asked them whether or not they wanted to be Roman citizens. So the Jews hated it. They thought it was insulting. And here's where it gets even more interesting. We were talking about knowing history earlier. 25 years before Jesus' day, all right? 25 years before this, when the tax was first instituted, there was a Jewish man named Judas the Galilean. And, he, and you can look this up. He led a military revolt to overthrow the Roman government. So already here we're seeing this politically charged atmosphere, and here's one way it can go. 
Some things about his rebellion, though. He refused to pay this head tax, this poll tax. It was kind of the last straw. He refuses to pay it. He sent in an army of Jews to cleanse the Jewish temple of Roman and pagan stuff. And he, his big message was that he was bringing forward the kingdom of God. We're not going to worship Caesar. We're just going to worship God. His rebellion was stopped, and he is killed by the Roman Empire. 25 years later, this guy Jesus comes onto the scene and preaches about this thing called the kingdom of God. This is Mark 12. What does Jesus do in Mark 11? He cleanses the temple. And now they ask him, are you going to pay the poll tax or not? They're trying to figure out if he's another revolutionary. Are you going to get political victory for us finally? So see the trap that is laid for Jesus here. If he, if he says that you need to pay taxes and support Caesar, he loses his Jewish influence. If he says don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, Rome's not going to be very cool with that, and they're going to kill him. He'll incite a rebellion. So he's caught. So let's see what he says about politics and therefore what we should say about politics. Look at 14 through 17. 14 through 17. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now follow this. Right off the bat, you can see it in 14. And this is where it applies to us. They want an answer. They want an answer. Look at how biting, how, how intensely they ask it. Um, is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not pay? No fancy footwork. Don't dig around it. Answer the question, Jesus. Is it right to pay the imperial tax? Should we or not? Yes or no? Say it. Pick a side. Pick a side. And Jesus will not do it. Christ's answer is so important to us today because he answers the question. He answers the question, but he does not have to pick a side in order to do so. He answers the question, but he doesn't pick a side in order to do so. If Jesus Christ, listen, if Jesus Christ does not put himself into a particular political party, if Jesus Christ does not put himself behind a particular social movement, then we disobey him when we try to shove him into one. If Jesus Christ will not put himself in a particular political party, if Jesus does not put himself behind a particular social movement, then we disobey him when we try to shove him into one. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians who are the most... Diam and the people killed each other over these things. They're the two most diametrically opposed political parties. Both of them have issue with Jesus. Think about Jesus' disciples. Matthew's job. Do you guys remember this? What was Levi? What was Matthew? He was a what? He was a tax collector for Rome. Another one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot who wanted to destroy 
Rome. And Jesus calls them both to be his disciples. Talk about differences in political opinion, okay? Like way more than just voter fraud or whatever was being discussed in ancient Rome, okay? And they both, now that doesn't mean that they both all of a sudden agreed with everything, but they both realized that Jesus was more important than their disagreements. Does that make sense? They still kept them. Like Simon is called the zealot, but then he becomes Simon the disciple. And it's so important for us to understand that our, our prime, what is our primary identity? Jesus gets more into this. He will not pick a side. Now, I'm going to get more into that, but he will not pick a side. In, there's this famous passage in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua 5, 13 and 14 says this. Now, think about Jesus will not pick a side. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua, think about the Pharisees, Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or against us? And the man said, no, but I am, you caught it, right? But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. Are you for us or are you against us, Jesus? You are not asking the right question. Your heart is not in the right place if that's the question being asked. Where can we put Jesus? Where does Jesus go? You know the only time false gods are mentioned in Genesis? It's when, it's when Jacob and one of his wives flees from Laban and they pick up the household idols and take them with them. These are false gods and they're shoved into a bag. And it's, it's Moses' kind of tongue-in-cheek. Here's the false gods. They're shoved into a bag at your convenience when you have to move. You, don't, you can't do that with God. Jesus is not put in different places. It's His agenda or your agenda is wrong. Your life will go so much better and you will find so much more peace if you stop trying to line Jesus up with your agenda and fall in line with His. Jesus doesn't go Israelite here. He doesn't go Roman here. And some will say, college students in particular maybe, will say exactly. He stays out of it. And so should we. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't do that either. In fact, Jesus is not anti-government at all. Look at 16 and 17. 16 and 17. Then they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they, and they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Give unto Caesar. Is, so we always skip that and go to the second part, and we'll get there. But the first part of that, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, is God's way of saying, this belongs to the government. What they are owed, you need to give them. Government is instituted by God. Government is a creation of God. Romans 13, 1-2, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. That's about as clear as it gets. Jesus says, if you owe Rome taxes, pay them. 
And this is the shocking thing about Christians paying taxes, at least in ancient Rome. The Roman Empire killed Christians by feeding them to lions or by hanging them on crosses. Listen, serious question. How did the government pay to keep those lions fed? Tax money. How did the government pay carpenters to make government crosses? Tax money. You may know that Jesus died on the cross, but did you know that he helped pay for it? You may know that Christians were fed to lions in the early church, but did you know that it was Christians who were helping pay to keep those lions alive? Jesus is saying so powerfully, show yourself as a good steward of your city. Show yourself as a good steward of your country so that even though your country may hate you, they'll never be able to honestly say that you hate them. So many Christians, what I'm doing with my fingers here, so many Christians in the name of Jesus are causing such chaos right now on the right and the left. And we've talked about this before. Even believing the correct thing can become an idol. Even the correct thing can become a baseball bat that you hit people with. But you're doing it in Jesus' name, so you think you're doing okay. But the upheaval, the chaos that you are causing. Now, there's a time to say, no, I won't do this. But we always do it from a heart that is not trying to cause upheaval and chaos. If you follow Christians in the book of Acts, it's never the Christians who are causing the chaos. It's the pushback against them. But right now, we're not trusting in a crucified Jesus. We want, we want the other Jesus. We want the warrior Jesus. Who's, we want what the Pharisees wanted, who's going to take things over. And we're going to lead the charge. And that's not how it works. Jeremiah 29.7 says this. Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. For in its welfare you will have welfare. Here's why this is so important in Jeremiah 29. Judah is being ruled in that moment by Babylon, the worst of the worst. Here's what's important about Babylon. In Genesis chapter 11, it's kind of the end of the first major arc of Scripture, and it ends with the Tower of Babel, okay? That's the beginning of the Bible. And, and the, the, the darkest part of human society is the Tower of Babel. In the middle of the Bible, Judah is taken over by Babylon, signifying the end of God's people in that age. So there's the beginning of the Bible and the middle of the Bible both have Babylon. In the book of Revelation, which we talked through last year, Babylon is the code word for the world system. Babylon, in every part of the Bible, Babylon is a real place, but it also symbolizes whatever worldly kingdom you're in. Whatever worldly kingdom you're in, Rome, Georgia, to Rome, Italy, whatever worldly kingdom you're in, you are to seek the welfare of that kingdom. You are to pray for the city and seek the welfare of the city. Be part of the process to help your city, to help your country. Listen, my biggest fear for you guys, for your generation, I was telling somebody earlier today that I'm, I was pumped to preach this to you guys because I'm preaching about like, like college kids pretty much are on the same page in terms of the importance level of politics. Now, there are some crazies out there, but like you guys are all pretty much on the same page in terms of like the intensity of this. So my biggest fear is not that you guys are going to revolt. 
Like, you guys are PVN kids. It would be like the most orderly, like, like nice revolt ever. So I'm not worried about that. My biggest fear is not that you guys are going to vote the wrong way. Listen, my biggest fear is not that you guys are going to vote the wrong way. Notice I didn't say which way. My biggest fear is that you guys are going to check out. You're going to see how angry your parents get about it. You're going to see everyone arguing about it. You can't get on social media for five minutes without seeing something, and you're going to say, I'm done with this, so you check out of the process completely. And listen, I know it doesn't help anybody when other people get in your face with stuff like voting or whatnot. That doesn't help anybody, and I know that. That's why I'm not here on behalf of those people. By saying, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is saying, you can, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you have to follow him into what's going on around you. You cannot check out. We are commanded by Christ to not check out from what's going on around us. Maybe you've got two fools running for office. Or media, or the media is so depressing, or social media is so depressing. Don't look to media. Don't look to social media. Look to Jesus and let Him give you the courage to engage in the world around you without either becoming cynical or idolatrous. You can become cynical. It's, all, it's, it's never going to work. It's all awful. I'm pulling away. Or you can become idolatrous and it's all you think about. But Jesus is that middle way. Jesus is the better way to engage with the world around us. You can't you can't seek the welfare of the city if you're not in the city, if you're not involved. And if you follow in the book of Acts, Paul always is up in this place called the marketplace. Okay? This isn't just like where they sold apples and like meat and stuff. The marketplace, now follow this, the marketplace was like the Ivy League schools, um, the, the White House, and Hollywood all together. The marketplace was where culture happened. And so Paul takes the gospel and shoves it right into the heart of every society that he goes to. We have to be involved in the process, in our city to make it better. But then here comes the second part. Here comes the second part, 15 to 17. Shall we pay or not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him one, and he said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. 17. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Give unto God what is God's. Now listen. Jesus asks, Whose face is on this? And they say, Caesar's. It's, it's Caesar's. Then it's his. Then it belongs to him. It's got his face on it, therefore it's his. It belongs to him because it looks like him. It belongs to him because it looks like him. Do you know another way of saying that? It's made in his image. Therefore, it belongs to him. Jesus is saying... If something is made in a person's image, it belongs to them. This is why the people were amazed. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is saying the coin belongs totally to Caesar because it was made in his image. And you were made in mine. So you belong to me. So you don't totally belong to a political party or a system of government or a social movement. You belong to me. Jesus is not anti-government. He invented it. He's saying there is only one ruler that you are made in the image of. Only one ruler that you owe your unwavering allegiance to. Treat Caesar with respect. He is your king, but you are not made in his image. He is not your God. Your political party should be treated respectfully, but it is not your God. Your social movement should be treated with respect and dignity, but it is not your God. And I don't mean this as a joke. You were not made, you are made in the image of God, not in the image of an elephant or a donkey or the Black Lives Matter movement or any particular movement behind marriage that you support. You were not made in that image. You do not belong to that. We look at the Exodus narrative and how ridiculous, and we think how stupid for them to worship a calf made out of gold. But we do the same thing. It's just not a calf. It's an elephant or it's a donkey or it's some other hashtag or whatnot. And those things are all good and fine and important, but they are not, you are not in their image. You do not owe, nor should you give a political party your unwavering, unquestioning allegiance. That throne is meant for God. Do not give to Caesar what belongs to God. Mark 11 and 12, if you ever need a quiet time to get into, Mark 11 and 12, politics is all over that. Mark 11 is what's called the triumphant entry. Jesus rides in, we've talked about this before, Jesus rides in on the cult of a donkey. And everyone starts freaking out. Why? Because riding into a city on a horse is the position of a conquering king. Think about it. In battle, he was not knocked off his horse. He conquered. So riding into town is the position of a conquering king. But, and Jesus rides in, but he's not on a horse. He's on the colt of a donkey. He rides in as a conquering king, but not the way we think he should. Which is his way of saying, think about the paradox here. His way of saying, I am a conquering king, but I will not conquer the way you think. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, if you think you can help the world through politics, then you should. Politics is good. Jesus invented it, and he holds it by the word of his power. But by entering on the cult of a donkey... By saying, give unto God's what is God's, Jesus is saying, if you think you can help the world through politics, you're right. If you think you can save it through politics, you couldn't be more wrong. Only one king can save, and he was not voted in, so he cannot be removed. Jesus riding in on the cult of a donkey is inserting Christianity into the political system inserting sacrificial service and love into the heart of the city. Think about it. The king was the heart of the city. And he wasn't a political leader. He was a sacrificial 
one. One of the many, and I'm going to go both ways, so just hang on. One of the many reasons people made so many excuses for the foolish things that Donald Trump did, one of the reasons people made so many excuses for the foolish things politicians on the left did, is because that's their king. That's their God. Gods can't do anything wrong or they cease to be gods. So when yours messes up, you better cover. You're just, you're just looking at it wrong. He didn't mean that. Oh, she didn't mean that when she said that. Oh, here you come attacking from this side again. That's what you do when you have to start covering for your God. Only Jesus gets better the more and more you look at him. You apply a microscope to any leader from history. Look at the founding fathers. Now, they, these were great men. And that's the thing. We, can't, we don't destroy that. These were great men, but they were. the Bible says they are flawed and deeply sinful, like we all are. Only a Christian can look at that accurately, and only Jesus gets better. You apply a microscope to Jesus, he gets even better. He gets even more beautiful, even more wonderful. The more you find out about Jesus, the better he gets. Practical, and then we're done. Let's talk about voting for a second. And this is just me. Um, I didn't vote in the last presidential election. And we're all still alive, amazingly. So, I, and I got, here's what happens. I, I, I explain, and this is not me saying this is what you should or shouldn't do. I'm sharing my story. But I got a lot of flack from a Trump supporter who said, if you don't vote for Trump, it's a vote for Biden. The, I'm not making it up. The next day, a friend of mine who supports Biden said, if you don't vote for Biden, it's a vote for Trump. So apparently I voted for both of them <laughs> at some point. But you see how it's never enough. You see that, right? It's never enough. And for me, the reason I couldn't vote is because both men supported and acted in ways that I didn't feel comfortable supporting. But listen, this is my point. It, I, the reason I didn't vote is not because I was checked out. I want to know these men and women running for office. What policies are they going to support? I took like five different tests online to see where I should stand. I sought counsel from friends and pastors. Ironically, listen, ironically, this past election where I didn't vote was the most politically involved I had ever been up to that point. And that's what I want for you guys, regardless of what you decide. Regardless of where you vote or don't vote or go or don't go, what movements you support or don't support, you have to understand you are not made in their image. You do not belong to them, which means when they mess up, you can own that because your identity is not tied to it. When they're successful, you don't have to lord it over people's faces because your identity is not tied to it. Christianity is we are involved because we worship Jesus. How quick are you to make excuses for your political heroes when they blow it? How quick are you to cover? How quick are you to go on defensive? How slow are you to apologize or wish that they would apologize? Being involved politically for a Christian means you don't compromise your values and you don't worship your party. You no longer give to Caesar your total unwavering allegiance. Jesus has commanded us as Christians to engage in the public sphere, whatever that looks like. 
It doesn't have to be deep political involvement for everybody, but we all need to be a part of making the city, of making our world better. You can pick a side because the gospel gives you hope to engage in that side. If you choose a side, you should be doing the work of trying to redeem whatever side you choose. And guess what? If you realize that this side is more corrupt than you thought, or the country is not going as well as you thought it was going to, then the next election cycle, you are, by Christ, enabled to do this, to swap, which sounds like a death sentence to some people, which shows that they are not viewing this correctly. In fact, that's the goal of democracy to change if things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. Christians are what's best for the political arena because we're honest about where we are. We seek the welfare of our city. Two quick resources for you guys and then we'll pray. Um, there's a, there are two sermons, one called Jesus Paid Taxes by Mark Dever, D-E-V-E-R, Jesus Paid Taxes. And the other one is called Arguing About Politics by Tim Keller, okay? Jesus Paid Taxes by Mark Dever, Arguing About Politics by Tim Keller. This is the place to start, guys. Regardless of where you stand or don't stand or, or whatnot, understanding that you are not made in the image, that you do not owe your undying allegiance to anything other than Jesus, that will free you up to become more helpful in the public square, which is what politics is for.